Our first reading is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then over to Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Let's keep that uh, passage of God's word open amongst us this morning as we bow our heads and ask for his help as his spirit opens our eyes today. Father, you are a speaking God, so make us a listening people that we might be those who hear your word today. Encourage our hearts where we are downcast and rebuke us today where we are in need of the medicine of your grace. And we ask all these things for Jesus' sake and for his glory alone. Amen. Well, in a landmark paper in 1995, psychologists Roy Baumeister and Mark Leary identified belonging as a universal human need ingrained in our very humanity. Belongingness, as they called it, is the human emotional need to be accepted. And the researchers discovered that it is so fundamental to us that the human mind has a primary and almost a universal desire to find it on a par with eating and drinking itself. In their findings, they concluded that when this need to belong is not met, there are severe implications for our well-being and our achievement, behavior, mental health, and self-esteem. And it's a key marker and an internal measure of how accepted that someone feels as to how well they are doing in their lives. Uh, in other words, the extent to which we, we feel personal worth then will be driven by the extent to which we feel accepted. This is especially true, of course, of uh, children. When they feel rejected by their parents, there are huge implications for their emotional, educational, and behavioral well-being. That's why so many children who have been adopted struggle with that dynamic later in life. But if the purpose of life is to know the God who made us, and if the purpose of life is to enter into his kingdom and be accepted by God the Father, let me ask you this morning, how accepted do you feel by him? 
How secure do you feel in your relationship with Jesus Christ? On a scale of naught to a hundred, how much do you feel today as a sinner that you belong with Christ and in His kingdom forever? And I ask that question because the sad reality, pastorally speaking, is that so many Christians struggle to feel accepted by God and struggle to feel that in terms of their primary identity, they belong in His kingdom. And there might be a number of people here this morning paralyzed by a secret anxiety that God has not fully accepted me. Maybe there's some past failure in the dim and distant past or an ongoing struggle. And as you look in the mirror, uh, you say to yourself, I don't know whether God really loves me. I don't know if God has fully accepted me. And I don't know whether I really have a place in His eternal kingdom forever. So this morning, Jesus is going to encourage our hearts with the medicine of the gospel of grace, because what Jesus wants to teach us this morning is going to structurally undergird our faith. As we leave this building, in our final song, we're going to be praising God for His grace as we understand once again this morning that whoever we are, if we're trusting in Jesus, whatever we've done, wherever we've been, through His grace And through His covenants, we are fully accepted, and it is forever. But this encouragement is going to be found in the strangest of all places, which is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 16, a short text with two simple points, and the first one, if you're making notes, is this eternal security because, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now, we face a major hurdle as we come to this text, which is that we think we know what it means, but my job this morning is to show you that what you think it means, it doesn't mean, but what it does mean is something much more exciting because it's something else. That phrase, the salt of the earth, is used these days of somebody who's a good guy. Maybe he's straightforward, down to earth, easy to deal with, honest, worthy of respect. That guy, he's the salt of the earth. And it was first used in English vocabulary by Chaucer in the Sumner's Tale in 1386. E be the salt of the earth. So there's that interpretation. But more than likely, you've heard that phrase, salt of the earth, in a different way that goes something like this. It's a directive. We think back to the youth group talk or maybe the campus Bible study, maybe to that Sunday sermon a few years ago, and it went something like this. It was a sermon on evangelism. The sermon went, salt is a preservative. And the thing is, the culture out there is corrupting and corrupted. It's like a rotten bowl of fruit. So, as Christians, what you need to do is to get out into the community, and you need to be the moral detergent, the preservative, to keep this corrupted society from getting worse. 
So get out of the salt shaker. In fact, there's already a book that's been written on it. Get out into the culture. Go and live the good life. And go and do evangelism. Because only if you do evangelism and live in the community will there be salt to stop the corruption of society. And then comes the challenge. Are you gospel-flavored? Are you living the good life? Are you keeping this culture from decay? And I want to tell you that if you've heard a sermon like that, it is completely and utterly wrong. Because here, the picture is nothing to do with evangelism. And here, it's not a command. It's a description, and it's a description that takes us to the heart of our assurance as the people of God. So why is that? Here's why. Salt is referred to over 40 times in the Bible. And throughout history, it was a highly valuable commodity, and it was very expensive and a highly valued mineral. In the days before refrigerators in the hot Middle Eastern sun, the only way to preserve the harvest was to eat with salt. It was so valuable, it was regarded by the Greeks as divine. Indeed, the word salary comes from the ancient Latin word salarium, which literally means salt money. And in the ancient world, Roman soldiers were not paid with cash. They were paid with salt, which is the origin of that phrase. Think about Jeff. Is he really worth his salt? So salt was a highly valuable commodity, but much more than that. It was used throughout history to bind friendships between two people. And still today, in Arab cultures, when two men are forming a friendship or a mutual bond, they will bind themselves in friendship with salt. And at the end of the contract or the end of the mutual bonds, in Arab cultures still today, they'll say at the end of the bonding, there is salt between us. But further still, in Middle Eastern cultures and in Middle Eastern history, the way in which an agreement was made so as to be contractually binding was with salt. So in the days before contracts and attorneys and seals and notary publics, the way in which you'd make a binding legal agreement was not through a signature in ink, but through a promise in salt. You'd head off then to buy the new BMW at the dealer. You wouldn't sign any papers, but you would bring salt in a salt cellar. And as salt was exchanged, the deal was binding. As you settled your house, as you settled on the house for settlement, you wouldn't take ink or money. You would take salts. But why salt? Well, think back to those chemistry lessons at school. Because your chemistry teacher at school would have told you that NaC1 is a very stable compound. The chemical bonds 
within salt is very tight because sodium and chloride are happy to become one and share the one electron. The very essence of salts is it doesn't change. So when you heat salt in water, you evaporate the water off, but the salts will still be there in salt crystals. You can't get rid of salt. Salt cannot lose its saltiness because sodium chloride is an eternally stable compound. It cannot change, and as such, it stands as a picture of permanence and unbreakability. But much more specifically than this, three times in the Old Testament, a very strange phrase begins to emerge, otherwise called the covenants of salts, or the salts covenants. For your notes, the first one comes in Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 13. Let me read it. Every offering of your grain you shall season with salt, and you shall not allow the salts of the covenants of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salts. So as the Israelites made their offering, they were to sprinkle it with salt as a picture of the everlasting nature of the promise that God had made them. The second reference comes in Numbers 18, verse 19. Let me read it. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord's, I give to you and your sons and daughters as your perpetual share. It is an everlasting covenant of salts before the Lord, both for you and your offering. This reference is to the priesthood, to the Aaronic priesthoods. And the point here is that the Aaronic priesthood, this, this priesthood that God would put in place to ensure the forgiveness of sins in the life of the nation, this priesthood will be forever because the promise of God is a covenant of salts which will never run out and which will roll on for eternity. And then the third reference comes in 2 Chronicles 13 verse 5 for your notes. Let me read it. Don't you know that the Lord your God, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt. So not only are the Israelites to remember salt in their offerings, and not only does the covenant of, of salt affect the priesthood, now the king and kingship itself is in this covenant of salt. For this king will rule over Israel and his descendants will rule in an eternal and unbreakable way. And the last reference comes then in Ezekiel 43, verse 23, where this salt idea is to be central to the nation of Israel. The priests are commanded to use salt in all offerings as a picture of the never-ending commitment of God to His people. Listen to this. 
You shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priests shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord's. For we are a cynical generation. And the reason we're cynical is because we live in a world of broken promises. Business deals crash. Political manifestos are not kept. 50% of marriages in America hit the rocks. So it's a very good question, isn't it? Might God one day rat on His promise? Might God one day do a U-turn? Might God say, um, well, I did forgive you, but sorry, now I'm going to unforgive you? Is it possible that God could give us a place in His kingdom and then one day introduce some small prints and take the offer away? Is it possible that salvation, which is by grace plus nothing, could be amended by the lawyers to become salvation by grace plus X, Y, and Z? And the gospel answer is never. It is impossible for God to go back on His promise. It is impossible because God has made His promise with you in salt. And salt, the stable compound, the unchanging mineral, stands in the Old Testament as a picture of His never-changing, never-ending grace. So in a wedding, the groom gets up to the chancel steps and stands next to his bride, and he makes a promise. And it goes something like this, that he'll take her for sickness and in health, and for richer, for poorer, and for better or worse. And what he's promising is that he will remain faithful, whether it's happy or sad, whether it goes well or not. That whatever the circumstances of life, the promise will not be amended. And it's like that with God when you become a Christian, as if God stands at the chancel steps as the groom, and He takes a bride people, that's us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, says the Lord. And I'm wondering if there's someone here this morning who desperately needs to hear that. All through the Bible then, salt stands as the picture of the unchanging permanence of the grace of God's. It can never be amended, tweaked, revised, reversed, cancelled, voided, or broken. In salt, God makes His eternal promise. And even to this day, the Jews remember this. Did you know that every Friday night at sunset, many practicing Jews still dip their breads in salt as a permanent reminder of the covenant of grace to them? It might be a good exercise next time you go to McDonald's and you open the salt sachet. The, the fries are already too salty, but as you open the salt sachet, think about that. As you, over lunch today, take the salt cellar, 
Think of that picture of the stable compounds and of God's promise of grace to you. Only, as we fast forward to the New Testament, as we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the Last Supper, the picture isn't so much of salt, is it? But of blood. That's what Jesus declared in the Last Supper. Whereas the Old Testament is made in salt as a picture of permanence, but by the time you get to the New Testament, it's even more graphic and extraordinary. For the promise is made in the blood of Jesus. As Jesus takes the cup, He says, this, this is my blood of the new covenant, of the eternal covenant. Because the way in which the salt covenant can become a permanent promise for sinners like us is only if there is a payment for sin, only if the holy God is appeased and satisfied as the penalty for our guilt and sin is taken. And the great good news of the gospel of grace is that it was taken and it has been taken as Jesus Christ goes to the cross of Calvary for your guilt and your shame as He declares, it is finished as He in His broken body and through His shed blood takes all your guilt and faces the wrath of the good God for us. It is the assurance for our sin. It is the basis of our security, and it is why we can dare to belong to God with confidence in His kingdom forever. And so, you are the salt of the earth is not a command to do evangelism. It is an assurance of your status. Jesus is saying you, and it's an emphatic you in the Greek, you are the people of God. You are the covenant people of grace. You are the children He has adopted into His family forever. And so, just as we're wrapping our heads around this extraordinary assurance and the implications of perhaps rethinking that verse that we've not heard taught properly for some time, as, as we're getting our head around that, then comes the somewhat disturbing challenge. But if the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But as we go back to our chemistry notes and think back to what the chemistry teacher taught us, she was telling us, no, that there can be no loss to salt, the stable compound. So, for salt to lose its saltiness is bizarre, it's impossible, a bit like saying bright darkness, or dry wet, or an elderly baby. These things don't go together. So, what does Jesus mean? Well, whereas true salts can never lose its saltiness, Whereas true salt can never change its chemical structure and its stable compounds, actually false salt can, impure salts can. 
And almost certainly what Jesus is envisaging here is not pure salts, but contaminated salts. Because salt in Jesus' day was derived from the salt marshes around the Dead Sea, and it contained many impurities. In Jesus' day, as they, as they mined the salt slabs from the Dead Sea, they were extracting impurities mixed in with the salts. And at times, those impurities would leach out through the salt and defile the salt so that it wasn't really salty at all. So again, verse 13b is not now about a failure to do evangelism. It's suddenly more serious. The picture here is of apostasy, of turning from the gospel, of so living that you show yourself not to be somebody of the covenants at all, of a life so lived, of a thought system so developed, of ambitions and motivations so clear that it reveals that after all, you were never really a person of covenant grace. Because all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is sharply contrasting two types of righteousness, two types of faith, if you like, two different religious systems. There is the faith of grace. We saw it last week, poor of spirits, as we mourn and hunger for a righteousness that we don't have, as we fall on our knees and cry to God for mercy. And then there is proud, pharisaical, self-obsessed religion. Perhaps the Pharisee, one foot in the world, one foot in the church, but actually wanting to live the world's way with a morality the world approves of as he virtue signals his own righteousness. This loss of saltiness is not a frightening verse for the true Christian. You can't lose the gospel of grace if you have it. But it is the picture of a false gospel, of a false faith that isn't really trusting in the death of Jesus at all. The Last Supper is a mural painting uh, from the high Renaissance period by Leonardo da Vinci, and it was started in 1495 and completed in 1498. And if you've been to Italy and you see it, it's a huge fresco. You'll have seen it online. It's a very famous painting the world over of Jesus at the Last Supper with the 12 apostles. And the painting, if you look at it, you can Google it later on, The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. It's a, it's a master stroke of um, handling of space, perspective, and the treatment of motion and emotion in a complex display of human uh, agony. But what is interesting is if you look carefully at Judas Iscariot, as you zoom in to what Judas is doing, he's just overturned a salt cellar. And it's an extraordinary detail, almost as if Leonardo da Vinci had understood this verse. Because what Judas has done in betraying Jesus at the Last Supper is to abandon the kingdom, as it were, to turn his back on the covenants of salt, the gospel of grace. The mark of being one of the true people of God is that you'll never do that. 
We'll heed the warning and make sure we don't. But of course, if we are turning our backs on grace, it must be because we were never of the covenant of salts in the first place. How then do we demonstrate we really are the true people of grace? And actually, we saw the answer last week. Uh, The shape of it we saw last week, verse 3, we're poor. Verse 11 last week, we're persecuted. And this is why the temptation will always be to lose your saltiness. Because who wants to be poor and who wants to be persecuted? So the world will always say, don't go the way of this covenant of salt, this, this covenant of grace. You're so poor. You're so persecuted. And as you join those two pictures together, poor and persecuted, what is the picture? It is the asylum seeker, isn't it? Persecuted, so they've got to leave the Ukraine, and they leave the Ukraine with nothing. I mean, who wants to be an asylum seeker with no place in this world, poor and persecuted? Actually, all over the world, there are Christians today who are tempted to turn their backs on the covenant of grace. I was reading the Forbes magazine yesterday, 360 million Christians around the world, that's one in seven, face persecution for their faith. As in Afghanistan, the Taliban hunt down those who trust in Christ with a life of slavery and imprisonment. In North Korea, if you're discovered to be Christian, you're put to the labor camps or flattened with a steamroller. In Somalia, Al-Shabaab will find you and round you up. In Libya, if you're a woman, you'll be raped or kidnapped. And in Nigeria, as Boko Haram search for you, if they, if they find you, you'll be beheaded for your faith. Who wants to live like that? And so the temptation will be to turn from grace to mutate, to blend in, chameleon-like, to perhaps keep a low profile, to hide our faith, and rather like that that bizarre animal from um, Dr. Doolittle, the little um, push-me-pull-you, I then go gospel, non-gospel, as I live a push-me-pull-you life of church Christian, but actually world non-Christian, as I live this compromised life of, well, I want one foot in the, in the church, but the other one in the world, as I keep my profile down on a Monday, but up on a Sunday. And I do think the temptation to live like this in the States is only going to increase as the cost of being clear on the error of critical theory and on the abuses and errors of LGBTQ. As we dare to speak out against these things, the temptation to be quiet and to be silenced will intensify. Now, the Apostle John warns us, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a warning, isn't it, to a Christian here today who is beginning to drift into compromise. We are entitled to assurance, but only if our lives match the identikit profile picture of the Beatitudes. Poor and persecuted, as I hunger and mourn for a righteousness of Jesus, and as I orientate myself under His crown and His rule. Is that you? Then you can have assurance. But if it's not, you can't. You are the salt of the earth. It's emphatic. 
but only for those who are living, trusting the cross and obeying the crown of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal security. But it leads to our second point, temporal mission. As Jesus announces, you are the lights of the world. So I want to pause now and do something exciting if you're into making money and uh, give you a little market tip. Um, the warnings in the UK are that they're running out of electricity and gas. It's as if someone's pulled the plug on the islands. And it looks as if at some points in December or possibly January, there'll be national blackouts across the United Kingdom. So if you're smart, as I know many of you are, and you want to make some money, as I know many of you do, here's where to invest. It is in flashlights and candles because in the UK, um, sales have gone up by 200% and candles have run out as people rush to buy them and they can't get flashlights. If you want to make some quick money, as I know many of us do, and if you're smart, as I know you are, why not stockpile candles and flashlights and then start exporting them to the UK? I think you can probably make a 200% profit in this extraordinary gap in the markets as the lights go out across the UK. And I was thinking about this the other day as I saw a satellite picture of um, Southeast Asia. Um, if you look at a satellite picture of Korea, you'll see that the north is completely black and the lights are on down in the south, in South Korea. And then Jesus announces, you are the light of the world. It's an extraordinary idea, as if to say that the darkness of North Korea is actually a global reality. It's an extraordinary verse in two ways. First of all, the world is dark. The whole world is in pitch darkness. And then he says, you are the light of the world. That is, we alone are the lights. In John 3, Jesus declares that he is the light of the world. But suddenly, this is now moved to us because by union with Jesus, we bear the light of Christ as the gospel of grace is given to us. The world is in darkness in the sense that it hates the lights. When you pick the rock up, the creepy crawlies run for cover. They don't like light, that's why they're under the rock. And it's as if when the kingdom of God emerges, people run for cover because if I'm wanting to live with myself as king, the last thing I want is the rule of Jesus being brought to bear upon me. Yet we dare to live in the darkness. We dare to shine the light of Christ. And again, look at verse 14, because it's not a command. It is actually a status of reality. It's not be the lights. He says you are the lights. This is who we are. Because we are the people of the covenants, therefore we are the people of lights. Because if we belong to the covenant of grace and we're living that gospel of grace, we are in status the lights as we live in the culture according to the rule of Jesus. And this verse is so encouraging. It's not a command, it's a status. It's a fact. You are the light of the world. And I don't think any of these people listening in the first century had any university degrees. 
None of them had any professional qualifications. None of them had been to seminary. None of them had won the Nobel Peace Prize. And yet Jesus can dare to say to this, this rang-shackled group on the mountain, barely grasping the gospel, it's an extraordinary and audacious claim. You are the light of the world. And this picture of the lights takes us to the second picture that Jesus uses, which is, the, which is of the city on the hill. And the city on the hill here is not D.C., but it's Jerusalem, perched 3,800 feet above sea level. And if you go to Jerusalem, you'll see it for miles. You can't avoid it. Across the wilderness of Judea to the mountains of Moab in the Transjordan Tableland, it is unmissable Jerusalem. The point is that this great community of grace was to become this great city of light. And as God founded the nation of Israel through the promise he made to Abraham that blessing would come to the nations, he founded the city of Jerusalem, this, this city on a hill. And the whole purpose, the whole raison d'etre of the city was to live a different life of moral separation so that the light of the truth of the kingdom of God would shine, so that the nations would come in moth-like into the lights and out of the darkness. To be the people of salt is to be the city of lights. To be the people of the covenant is to be a people of mission. For the whole point of the nation of Israel was to be a magnetic people that so lived the holiness of God that the world would flood in from the darkness of sin to the light of the truth of the love and the grace of God. So there's been two great excitements, really. Uh, this is my first anniversary of getting to know you, but there's been two great excitements since we've arrived. The first one is the extraordinary colors of fall. Isn't it amazing, the colors outside? I just can't believe it. But the second were the fireflies, because we've never seen fireflies before. And it was so exciting that one of the children tried to catch one in a jar and then take it into his room. That didn't end well for the firefly. Uh, but as we watched the fireflies out in the darkness, I did think to myself, what an extraordinary picture of the Christian life. And you saw this little light, this little dots flying around in the darkness. Next time you see a firefly, think, that's a picture of my mission, to bring a little light to bear into the darkness of sin. I am to shine, because that's the picture that the Apostle Paul paints in the New Testaments. Listen to this from Ephesians 5. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, he says. In Philippians 4, think of the firefly, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as a light in the world. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
And I'm prepared to bet a thousand bucks that the reason you're a Christian today is because of the difference you saw in the life of somebody. Was it a nephew or an uncle, a father or a grandmother, a chaplain? Was it a youth pastor, a teacher at school, a co-worker? Was it a neighbor? Who was it? And afterwards, over coffee, you can come and tell me. I'd love to know. But the point was, somebody was out in the darkness living the light of life and grace. I was driving down Bethlehem Pike just the other day, and I came across a light shop. And my first thought was amazing, this window. with There must have been 300 lights in the window. And then I thought, how sad. Well, they're meant to be sold and out into houses giving light. And so often the church is like that. We shine the light here, but we don't actually get out of the shop, of the store, and shine in the world. And as the elders have thought about Lydes, we've analyzed the many, many strengths of this church family, and they are legion. But perhaps there is one big weakness that they've identified, which is that we are tempted to be an inward-looking congregation like this, as we shine here, like the light store. And therefore, the challenge to be a healthy church is to move from being inwardly looking and inwardly shining to this. Like the firefly, we get out into the culture, out into the cul-de-sac and the team and the factory and the school and the office, and we dare to shine brightly because this is the mission of the church. The Scottish missionary Robert Murray McShane once said this, Many want to live within sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And he left the comforts of his denomination in Scotland to head overseas to a dark place. Actually, it was Israel to preach the gospel as he died at the age, I think, of 26. Because once you've got, grasped that you are of grace, the covenant of salt, it must mean that we become people of mission. If you've grasped that you are part of the kingdom of grace, it must mean we are people of mission. If you've grasped that you are part of the kingdom of grace, it must mean that we are people of mission. And that's why I've tasked all of the pastors to analyze every single area of this ministry. Pastor Michael is going to be looking at our discipleship and our evangelism to ensure that we get out into the community. Pastor Steve, I've said, I want you to look at how you pastor amongst the older demographic into mission. Pastor Jeff is going to be looking at all of the music ministries and turning us from being inward-looking to being outward-focused as we go out into the community to do musical performances and as we do musical concerts here, which are missional. And Pastor Zach, when he arrives, his challenge will be to turn our youth group into a missional organization so that, like fireflies, we shine within our community. 
Because verse 14 is borrowed from the comedy section, isn't it? A man who buys a lamp, I guess he's at Ikea, my worst nightmare, and he gets the lamp, maybe it costs $300, my second worst nightmare, and then he brings the lamp home from Ikea, and he carries it home in the box, and then he puts it together, my third worst nightmare, and then the lamp is plugged in. And then he picks the box, and then puts the box over the lamp, and then takes the lamp and does that, and then sticks it under the bed or behind the sofa. Who would do that? God's lit the lamp, but how bizarre for us to hide the lights of the covenant of grace. The whole point of being the community of grace is to be the people of mission. The whole reason that Abraham is chosen as the covenant father of grace is to have a family of grace that becomes a family of mission. Do not shine in such a way that your light is hidden. No, Jesus says, if we've understood the covenant of salts, the everlasting grace and mercy of God's, we will have to be a people of lights. Indeed, it is as we shine as the people of light, that we identify we really are the people of grace. Do you want to know assurance? Do you want to know if you really are of the covenant of grace? It will be shown in the life of the Beatitudes, shone out into the darkness of the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this, Christian people, you and I, you and I are living in the midst of gross darkness. They will never have light anywhere in this world except from you and me and from the gospel we believe and teach. They are watching us. Do they see something different about us? Do our lives bring a silent rebuke? Do we so live as to lead them to come and ask, why do you always look so peaceful? How is it that you're always so balanced? How can you stand up to the things as you do? Christian people alone are people of lights. Let us live and function as people of lights. I want to last, as I finish, quote from this book called What is a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. It's a great book that we're going to be giving to the eldership actually in November, and then I'm going to be asking the whole church uh, to read over Christmas. What is the mark of a healthy church? And Mark Dever, the pastor of um, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, on page 77, says this, with which I finish. When is a church healthy? And when a church is healthy and its members know and cherish the gospel above everything else, they will increasingly want to share it with the world. George Truett, a great Christian leader of the past generation, and first pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, said, the supreme indictments that you can bring against a church is that it lacks passion and compassion for human souls. A church is nothing better than an ethical club if its sympathies for lost souls do not overflow, and if it does not go out to seek to point lost souls to the knowledge 
of Jesus Christ. Today, members of the church will spend far more time with unbelievers in their homes, offices, neighborhoods, far longer than they will spend it with other Christians, let alone non-Christians on Sunday. Evangelism is not something we mainly do by inviting someone to church. Each of us has a tremendous opportunity for the gospel of salvation. Let's not barter it for something else. Let us share it today because to be of the covenant of salt, the assurance of grace, will mean that we must be people of light. Let's pray. So, Father, our prayer today is one of thanks that you have saved us by grace. And our prayer today is that you would make us a people of light. Enable us, encourage us, and empower us because we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.